to everybody. A uh, couple of special welcomes. Uh, one would be, I understand there's a group here from Teen Challenge uh, this morning, so thank you for joining us. Uh, happy Mother's Day to all the moms. I know you just were, you were eager to wake up this morning, and I just want to, I want to talk about atheism on Mother's Day and, and uh, convergent evolution and stuff like that, so I know you were excited for this. <laughs> Uh, you know, my hope for this morning and for this, this entire class is even if we don't track with every single detail along the way, the, the, the impression that I want to convey and that really I hope the Lord conveys through this material is that we believe in a God who is reliable, who's faithful, who has faithfully revealed himself to us and who stands true through all generations. So we can say with the Apostle Paul, uh, let God be true and every man a liar, right? At the end of the day, uh, we're going we're gonna to stake our lives on something that's eternal and not just shifting according to the latest opinions. Uh, but we do get the assault on us in the world that we live in. We were, we're told, as we've discussed, we're told that we, we live in a world without God, that uh, God's unnecessary, that uh, there's, there's reason to no longer believe in Him. And so that can just, the more and more you hear that, and that's the narrative that you encounter, it it has an effect on us, and, and we would be foolish to deny it. You know, it, it has an effect on how much you really want to be here this morning. If you're convinced 100% this is true, this is worth investing my life in, no matter the sacrifice, there's an eternity awaiting me uh, forever in Christ, right? That, that, that's one thing, but if somebody unbolts that for you, then you're going to start to look for alternative visions for life. You know, how much does it really matter? if I'm here, if I'm reading my word, um, and not necessarily jettisoning that, uh, but what somebody has done with their arguments, objections, thoughts, uh, they just lowered this a little bit in your estimation. So it has an effect on all of us. Uh, so the hope for these kinds of resources is, is to help us in that setting, help us interact with others, but also just over time uh, convey the impression that this is worth giving your life to. Uh, this is true. So uh, what we said we would do with our time this morning uh, is spend a little bit of time during questions and answers. So I hope some of you prepared uh, questions, otherwise the silence will be interesting because uh, I'll just have to you know, start reading the cat in the hat or something. But uh, Peter wanted me to announce that we will take a break after uh, this Sunday and, and spend a couple weeks on break. So prayer will be at 845 and then following that, we're going to do a study of the tabernacle and the festivals in the Old Testament. So uh, I know we're all excited about that. Pastor Peter uh, has given a lot of study to that, and so he's going to be presenting that with a view for how these support God's unfolding plan to, to save and rescue his people. So you don't want to miss that. Uh, please plan to attend the next School of Word class as well. And, and I know he would want me to say, plan to be here no matter what's being taught, right? We don't just jump in for seasonal things, um, but uh, we want to give ourselves to an ongoing study of God's word and his truth. All right, so I've given you a packet. Uh, staff meeting, Pastor Keith recommended that I create flow charts to help us understand what we've talked through. I don't know if I've really done that. Uh, this is his engineering mind at work, I guess, uh, so I've tried to put something together that just, if nothing else, it, it organizes the basic talking points that we've covered for each of the lesson and kind of puts it in a conceptual framework so that, you know, if you, if you go to one of the boxes and say, okay, so let's say I'm having a conversation about the canon of Scripture. What, what are things to consider in light of that topic? 
uh, what are arguments that come up on other sides. So this isn't detailed, but what this does is it just, you know, you, you can fill in, you can go back to the lesson on that point and try to find where that's discussed. If, if that's something that comes to your attention in a future moment or if you're just needing help conceptualizing things or remembering uh, some things that we, we covered. Uh, why don't we just work through a couple of these quickly and that'll just generate uh, some thinking, help us remember some things we covered, and then we can go to your questions after that. Did everybody get one of these? Because uh, Vanna Peter is handing them out now. All right, uh, so our first topic we considered was the question, is the Bible unreliable? And, and we looked at three questions under that, which was how do we know that the Bible we have is what was written? How do we know that what was written really happened and how do we know it's true? Well, under that first question, how do we know that the Bible we hold in our hands is actually the Bible that was written? We said there, there are three things that are related to that. One is, are the translations that we're reading accurate? And there's a common tendency to see translation as going through this telephone game process. You know, first it was in Hebrew, and then it was in Latin, and then it was in English and Spanish and Klingon and so on. Uh, but we said that that's not how that happens, right? So the, the considerations translation process is not the telephone game. Uh, it, it's always the original Hebrew and Greek that are used, and even skeptics like Bart Ehrman don't question the accuracy of translations. And so what's really meant by that is the transmission of Scripture. How do we know uh, that what we hold in our hands are the words, you know, when, we're, when we have the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, how do we know that these are what was originally written? We saw that the Bible is the best attested document from antiquity, so in terms of its manuscript history, it's just in a class of its own. There's no competition between the Bible and anything we have in the ancient world. And there are differences among those manuscripts, but we saw that only 1% of those differences that are called variants are meaningful and viable, and that no central doctrine is affected by these variants. Uh, under the canon of scriptures, so how do we know that the books that we have in the Bible, the ones we're supposed to have, uh, we said that uh, it will, if we believe in a God who can inspire scripture, uh, it doesn't take much uh, more faith, so to speak, to believe in a God who is able to communicate to his people what he has and has not inspired. And so canon is just the, the process of the church looking to what God has inspired and saying, hey, this has got the qualities of revelation from God. Uh, there's early attestation of the New Testament canon. By the way, Jesus, in places like Matthew 23, he affirmed the Old Testament canon. So we, we saw that, you know, and we, we did this later on in the presentation as well, that if you have Jesus, you have the Old and New Testament. He affirms the Old Testament as the word of God, and he commissions his disciples to write the New Testament under his authority. Uh, we, we saw that Constantine had zippity doo to do with the canon, uh, and the Gnostic Gospels are late, not written by eyewitnesses, and reflect a radically different worldview. So I'm not going to go through all of those presentations, um, but that's how this flowchart works. It, it kind of gives you the, the major topic, and then some of the, the main subheadings, and then what we discussed in consideration to that. So the, the, again, the three topics we considered is the Bible unreliable, uh, is God a moral monster? And that considered both the problem of evil in the world, generally, how can we believe in a loving and good God when there is brain cancer, and there's HIV, and there are hurricanes, and all these uh, ways that we experience disaster and pain in this world? as well as the evil in our own hearts. And then what, what's called the problem of, of apparently immoral 
commands, right? It's common to call the God of the Bible, especially the God of the Old Testament, quotes, uh, a moral monster because he commanded genocide, he promoted slavery, he instituted bride prices, right? So just all these kinds of accusations, and so that the material here will remind you a little bit of what we discussed there. And then we spent two weeks talking through, does science disprove Christianity? Uh, the first week was just dealing with the question, are science and religion, are, are they things that we should see as at warfare, as butting heads in conflict? Um, we, we saw a few things under that. One was that it's common to talk about science as if it has all the answers, as if it's something that's certain, and it, it, you know, anything that we need to know in life, we should look to science as the source. And that's not just a caricature, that's the, that's the position. People like Bertrand Russell say, uh, what science cannot tell us, mankind cannot know. Right, is that true? So you hold up your Bible, and, and that's not delivered by science. So is that outside the category of human knowledge? Uh, well then, uh, guys, you don't know whether or not your moms that you're celebrating today on Mother's Day love you, because science doesn't tell you that. Science can tell you about some sort of chemical reaction happening in their brain. It doesn't address something like love and whether that really exists. And so th we saw there are many things that science uh, addresses helpfully, but there are many things outside of science that it doesn't address, right? I, I think I'll put this later in, in your notes, this illustration. If somebody had a uh, a metal detector that was 100% effective, and they, they combed the beach with their metal detector, uh, could they then conclude, well, th there's no plastic on this beach. It's nowhere. My metal detective is extremely effective, and it hasn't had any plastic anywhere. You know, uh, Well, even if science is a reliable way of detecting things in the natural world, that doesn't talk about the stuff that science just isn't designed to detect. And there are things like moral values. There, there are a whole list of categories that we considered under that. And so no matter how effective science is, that doesn't mean that we don't need religion, uh, Christianity, the Bible, uh, and other fields of knowledge. Uh, we saw that science itself rests on certain assumptions about the nature of the world that are only true if God exists and that there is support for uh, the existence of God broadly uh, from science itself. And we spent our last week uh, discussing the topic of evolution, because that, that one in particular uh, it comes up in, in these settings. You know, Dawkins said, if you find somebody who claims to not believe in evolution, that person is stupid, ignorant, or insane, or maybe wicked, but I'd rather not think that, you know. So at least he gives us that much. Uh, but that's a little bit of a, a slippery question, because, you know, there's not just one meaning of the term evolution. And so we, we discussed three senses, at least. There are three ways that that word is used, and how should we think about uh, those three. Uh, the uncontroversial meaning of evolution is change over time, that organisms change, they adapt uh, as they interact with new environments, and that's observable in nature. There's no point in denying that. Uh, things like random mutation and natural selection really happen. We can, we can put that under the microscope and see it. And so nobody uh, from a young earth creationist to a Darwinist doubts that, that that's happening in the world. Uh, more controversial is the understanding of evolution as universal common descent. Uh, all right, so that all life, all of biological life has, ultimately it can be traced back to one common ancestor, originally a single cell organism that over time spanned off into all of biological life. Uh, so that, that's a more controversial understanding of evolution. 
and we, we discussed uh, some evidence that there is for that and then also some problems that there is for that in, in, in the fossil record and, and we can talk about more of that if you've got questions on that and we discussed a little bit what, what should a Christian think about that and then the most controversial is Darwinism uh, which is not number two, that wasn't unique to Darwin uh, but number three, which is the way that that happened, the way that all evolutionary history happened over time is, is purely natural methods of random mutation and natural selection. So successive random mutations blindly occurring, adding up over time with natural selection operating on that has produced everything from Poole algae to Albert Einstein. So that's that's the uh, Darwinism position, and we, we discussed some problems for that. So that's an overview uh, of some things that we've interacted with in our five weeks together. Uh, you'll see some just kind of, I didn't put an extra extraordinary amount of effort into those final two pages, but just brief replies to standard objections that come up. If, it, if you just want a, a one or two sentence way of interacting with some of those thoughts. Uh, so. All right, with that, I'm going to stop talking, and it's your turn. So uh, hopefully there are some questions. Again, Pastor Peter will be coming around with a microphone. Uh, so related to the topics we discussed, if you just want, hey, could you say that again? Uh, or, you know, what exactly do you mean by that? Uh, or if it's something that has come up in your own interaction and reading, and, um, and it doesn't have to be restricted to these topics, but just anything about uh, faith in the world that we live in and the reliability of of God's truth, I uh, want you to, to be free uh, to uh, raise that, and we'll do our best to talk through it. So, all right, let's have at it. Evan, you talked about um, the Bible's unreliable. How do you know which version you use, ESV, NK, King James Version? When you go to a Bible bookstore, which one do you pick out? Okay, great question. And uh, just one thing to... To be clear, um, is that when we talk about the Bible being God's word, inerrant, uh, we're not talking about any particular translation of the of Scripture. So it's it's God in the original languages that has inspired His word, and so to the extent that uh, we can we can gather what that was originally, that is what is inerrant and without any any uh, factual error. Uh, so. When it comes to translations, translations do their best to represent that in uh, English and in a variety of languages. And so no translation is 100% perfect. Uh, that's not what we believe about Bible translations. But uh, obviously most of us, we, we can't read it in the original languages. And so uh, translation is, is something that is, is a tremendous benefit to us. Uh, so the, the question specifically of what should we use, I think you, you should use a variety of translations, uh, knowing that... No one in particular is, is going to be absolutely everything you would need to know about that passage. But if you have a, a good, reliable translation, you're reading the Word of God. Um, so uh, we use the English Standard Version here at the church. And the reason why we do that is it, it, it tends to do a good job of trying to uh, accurately represent the text that it's translating but put it in a way that's uh, relatively easy for us to understand. So accuracy and readability, the ESV does a good job of that, uh, but that wouldn't be the only translation we'd recommend you using, you know, a variety of ones. Uh, NASB would be more toward the, the formal side of things, but it, it doesn't always come off as, as readable in, in English. NIV would be more towards the readability side of things, but sometimes you'll lose a little bit uh, when it comes to uh, 
accurate representing of, of the original. But no matter what translation you read, unless it's like the New World translation from Jehovah's Witnesses, um, you're, you're getting God's word, right? And so you can be confident that, uh, and, and you'll see that. You'll, you'll, you'll compare different translations, and it's like, oh, that's an interesting way of, of, of putting it. Um, but you're getting the same truth, right, uh, no matter which one you use. So we preach from the ESV. We think it does a good job of getting different values in play, uh, but that wouldn't be the only one we'd recommend by any means. So uh, try a few out. Yes, Peter's going to run all the way to the front of the room. I don't know. You talk loud. Okay, go ahead. I know God, I know God doesn't. Oh, so, Sorry. I was confused. Go ahead. All the way in the back, and then we'll get James next. I, I know God doesn't tempt us, but does he test us? Um, well, the, the statement about God tempting us comes from James chapter 1, you know, that we shouldn't believe that uh, when we experience temptation that ultimately God is the source behind that in the sense of uh, designing that so that we would sin, so that we would fail. Uh, and James says that happens because of our own desires. We, we have a, a fallen nature that tempts us towards sin. The rest of the Bible teaches us we also live in a fallen world that tempts us to sin. And then there's a personal force behind uh, uh, temptation, right? There's Satan and his demons that also are trying to lead us to sin, lead us to destruction. Uh, but that same passage, James chapter 1, says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet uh, trials of various kinds, and trials are ways that we experience the testing of our faith, and he says, for you know that the testing of your faith is designed by God to produce endurance, steadfastness, hope. Um, so the, the, the difference between, say, well, what's the difference, right? The same experience, the same circumstance uh, can be an opportunity for testing or for temptation, and so the design behind it is what's different, right? The, the motivation. Uh, Satan is tempting us to lead us away from God, to lead us toward our destruction. God is testing us, maybe using the same circumstances, but to lead us toward himself, to strengthen our faith. And you, and you see that. We, we looked a couple of Sundays ago. Uh, Pastor Keith mentioned Genesis chapter 50, where Joseph looks at his brothers and said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And it's the same object. So the very thing, you meant this for evil, God meant this for good. And so the circumstances of Joseph being uh, sent into slavery in Egypt, there were different forces behind that same set of circumstances, but for different purposes. So uh, yeah, God, God would, would test us in, in Scripture, but would not be tempting us towards sin. Uh, James. It's not going to bite you. One of the things that has bothered me, especially since I'm new to the Word, new to the Bible, is something that has uh, apparently bothered me for many years, and it has to do with the physical structure of the Bible. It's also apparently becoming more popular in our, in our culture today to question who selected the books that would make up the Bible and what do we do about the books that are apparently out there that seem to speak to and at God and Jesus and, and yet aren't acknowledged? Okay, great question. Uh, um, I think that it is um, new in the sense of it being popular. You know, there's, 
there's some sort of cycle that news programs go on every, every uh, Christmas and Easter, History Channel, uh, Newsweek publications. They're, they're going to run something through it where, you know, at some point or other, the Gnostic Gospels are going to come into the conversation, right? So uh, books that were written uh, in the ancient world uh, about Jesus or surrounding the events that are you know, associated with the Bible, but by different groups and books that didn't uh, make it into the Bible. And so the, the presentation is typically that there were all these variety of, of competing books, right? And sometimes it, it's put like this, and, and uh, this was popularized by Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code a few years back. Was, uh, so at, what he says is, at the Council of Nicaea, uh, the church was looking at like a hundred different options, and they selected the four Gospels, and then they persecuted the people who supported the other ones, and Constantine laid down the law, and that's how we got our Bible, right? Well, that's not quite how it happened uh, by any means, all right? So Constantine, we, we saw this when, uh, when we looked at this, this question in the class. So this would be uh, part two of the class, but the first topic we looked at was the reliability of Scripture, and we spent a little bit of time talking about what's called the canon of Scripture, which is the books that should be in the Bible, uh, so that, that, that picture, uh, Constantine didn't have anything to do with it. Council of Nicaea didn't have anything to do with it either. So that, 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 that's just demythologizing that, that kind of portrait. But to get, to get at your question, all right, so uh, if God is going to write and inspire some books but not every book, that's what creates a canon, all right? So if, 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 if I were an author and I were writing books, I, I know which books I've written, and which books I haven't written, right? So I, I, at least I know that, and, and, and other people, hopefully they can detect that as well. So from God's perspective, of all the books that have been written in the world, at least God knows I've inspired these, and I've not inspired these. Well, whether or not those books ever get put into one volume called the Bible, you already have a canon, right, from the perspective of God. And so for the church, it just has, it, it has to do with us coming to see our, these books have the characteristics of inspiration and these do not. And, and so if God is able to inspire a human individual to write the words that he intends to be written, he can also lead his people to recognize his word. And, and, and that's to say the, the fundamental reason, and there was some debate about this. Uh, some of you guys uh, might be familiar with there being some differences between uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants on, on certain books that are to be in the Old Testament. And so at the time of the, of the Protestant Reformation, there was a debate on the question of how do we know what books should be in the Bible? And the, the Roman Catholic response was, uh, well, the church, you need the authority of the church to tell you uh, uh, these books are inspired, these books aren't. Uh, and so if you're, if you're no longer locating ultimate authority with the church, you can't know. How do you know whether or not you should read Matthew or Mark, Luke, John, uh, and so on? And, and, and the reformers responded by saying, uh, God's word is self-authenticating. It, it comes in its own authority. It doesn't need any human individual to, to uh, affirm it in order for us to be, able, be in a position of believing it. And so God's people, as they read his word, the Holy Spirit testifies within them that they are encountering the word of God, right? So, so ultimately, that's the answer. God knows what books should be in the Bible. Uh, God is able to reveal to his people what books should be in the Bible. And the Holy Spirit's at work inside of us, leading us to recognize and encounter these books as the word of God. 
Uh, so theologically, that would be the way that I put it. But then when you, when you put that into the question of, okay, so how does that happen in history? Uh, well, at the time of uh, the first century, so uh, the, the Old Testament canon uh, already existed. So everything from Genesis to Malachi, which is how it's arranged for us today, was in a little bit of a different order then. Uh, but those books were already uh, recognized among the, the people of God then. And uh, it's interesting in, um, in Matthew, I, I mentioned this earlier, Matthew chapter 23 Jesus talks about uh, everybody from Abel to righteous Zechariah who was killed uh, between the temple and the altar, right? So he's, he's talking to the Pharisees and he's describing, you've been persecuting God's people from the beginning, all the way back from Abel, all the way to Zechariah, all right? So, well, well this guy, Zechariah, uh, is, uh, he's, he's found in 2 Chronicles, well, in the way that the Jews ordered their scriptures, uh, in, the, in the Pharisees in particular, how they ordered their scriptures, it was from, it was the same books that we have, but it was from Genesis to Second Chronicles. And so Jesus' statement, it, it takes the, the entire, it, it clues you in as to what Jesus viewed as the Old Testament and what he considered to be God's word. Now, interestingly, that, that canon did not include uh, what we call the Apocrypha. So th those books that are included in the Old Testament in Roman Catholic Bibles, uh, the Genesis to Second Chronicles canon, that, that was not considered by the Jews to be part of that. They were considered to be historical books that were helpful to them, but not part of what God has God has inspired. In fact, uh, in, in the debates between, you know, at the time of the Reformation, it wasn't until the Council of Trent in the 1500s that the Roman Catholic Church officially declared the apocryphal books to be part of uh, the canon of, of Scripture. So the Old Testament canon already existed at the time of Jesus and at the time of the disciples. And what Jesus does, we find in the Gospels, is he commissions his disciples to speak in the authority of his name. He tells them that the Holy Spirit would lead them to uh, remember the things that he had spoken to them and to testify to others as witnesses. And, and so we have uh, writings in the New Testament that are, are getting created. So you have the Gospels and you have the letters and, and not necessarily immediately with the intention of, okay, we're going to collect these together and call them the New Testament. Right, so the church exists. Paul's writing to, uh, he's writing letters to, to a variety of congregations. Uh, but what you see over time is those letters are then getting read in, in one church after another, and then they're collected together. And so 2 Peter 3, uh, 16, uh, Peter talks about Paul's letters, and he calls them scripture. And he's talking about them as, as a collection that's circulating in the church that the church at this point early in, in the first century is already calling scripture using the same word that they use to refer to the Old Testament. So in the New Testament itself, we have evidence uh, for what should be considered God's word. So when that comes to the question of, well, what do you do with things like the Gospel of Thomas, uh, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of, of Judas, the uh, Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the infancy Gospel of Thomas. So you could just go on and on, and you, could, you can name a dozen or so other documents uh, that have you know, been discovered over time. But when you look at these documents, uh, none of them are earlier than the second century. So they, they were written long after the guys whose names they bear died. So they, they obviously weren't written by Peter, Jude, uh, Thomas. Um, they, they, they aren't written in connection to the <clears throat> apostles uh, or to the first century church. 
And uh, so they come much later, and many of them reflect a worldview that didn't even exist until much later called Valentinian Gnosticism, this worldview that uh, there was one God who created the world, and that God must have been evil because creation's evil. The physical world is inherently evil, and we've got to get rid of our physical bodies in order to be saved. Right? Well, that's not what you find in the Bible, right? So this is a different worldview that comes to be reflected. The, these Gnostic Gospels, they don't display any sort of uh, connection to the historical Jesus. They're just a bunch of sayings and magic tricks that Jesus does, but there's, they're, they're not like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which talk about the, the culture and politics and landscape and geography of Palestine, just rooted in history. These kind of just float above. In fact, literally, Jesus floats above the ground in one of the Gnostic Gospels. He's not genuinely human, uh, right? So the, it, it, sometimes people think, oh, it was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John that presented Jesus as God. These other Gospels don't present him as God. It's actually the opposite problem. These other Gospels don't present him as genuinely human. They present him as God, as divine, but, but since humanity is, is icky, phys, physicality is wrong, they, they presented Jesus, he looked human, but he kind of floated above the, uh, above the ground kind of a thing. So uh, there's just uh, several reasons why uh, they, they, these, these other documents just don't display any continuity with the first century church. And when, uh, so you, you did have gatherings of the, of the church to consider these matters. And, and the criteria they used for uh, accepting a book as inspired uh, was one, it was consistent with other books we've recognized to be inspired. Uh, it had the uh, authority or the commissioning or some sort of connection to the apostles, the original 12 apostles, uh, that it, 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 it was confirmed as true. You know, if, if a book is just saying something that was demonstrably false, they would not consider that to be uh, inspired. And so there were other criteria as well. Um, so the, the, the two things that I wanted us to consider with that was theologically, how should we view something like the canon? But then in history, how did the, the books in the canon come to be recognized? So there's a lot more to say about that, but that maybe gives a little bit of, of an impression of that. All right. I won't be as long-winded with the other answers, I promise. So I've <clears throat> recently I've run into a couple of people who would consider themselves agnostic. I don't know if they're defining it correctly. They would define it as um, there's neither evidence for nor against enough evidence either way to prove the existence of God or disprove right. the existence of God. They wouldn't call themselves an atheist. Right. They just call themselves an agnostic. So I'm just wondering, if maybe like for bullet point references, kind of like what you have here, where would you begin with that discussion right. with, some, with somebody um, having that position? Yeah, um, okay, great question. Uh, one is I think that's an honest position, which is helpful. It's helpful for somebody to describe themselves in that way. Um, because typically the way that people define atheism today is they define it as that position, but then they say that's what an atheist is. But no, really an atheist is somebody who believes there is no God. And so, but what they do is they take that and they lower the burden of proof and say, no, an atheist is somebody who just doesn't know that there's a God, just hasn't been convinced that there's a God. But what that really is, is agnosticism. Uh, now, the, the interesting thing about agnosticism is if you're really agnostic, uh, you should live like there's a God, right? If, 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 if at the end of the day, it's like, I don't know, either there's a God or there's no God. Uh, well, if it's either, either when I die, uh, you know, I'm just, worms are going to eat me no matter what I believed, or maybe there's an eternity, 
which, which of the two should you land with, right? So, but the problem is most agnostics, they don't just you know, live like there's a God, they live as if there's no God. And so what that shows is uh, underneath the heart of that is, is really a functional atheism that's at work. But I think one way to start with that would be to ask, um, okay, so um, what kind of evidence would you accept? You know, if you're saying, I just, I'm just not convinced, I'm not convinced there's good reasons to believe in God. Um, what kind of reasons would you, you know, accept to, to believe in him? Now, typically in response to that, people actually think they're aiming high and actually don't really aim all that high. Or they aim uh, ridiculously high in, in such a way that they don't take into any other category of life. And so why it's, it's a matter of such eternal importance like whether or not God exists in which the stakes are so great and so significant, would you say, well, well God's got to prove himself to me at this level. Well, well what about at this level? <laughs> Considering the, the, the stakes that are in play. But what often happens is sometimes they'll say, well, I think God should you know, write something in the sky or do this or that. And, and, and that's actually, it's, it's clever but you're actually aiming lower than the evidence that we already have for God's existence. The, the, the evidence that we have for the existence of God is much better than somebody writing some I love you phrase in the sky. Um, and so I think that, that's a little bit interesting to discover about them by asking that question. And then so when they say, well, I, I think this. Why do, you think, why do you think if there's a God, he should have to do that? You know, uh, If there's a God, truly, he doesn't owe us any additional reason or evidence beyond the fact that we exist to believe in him. Now, he's been gracious to go much further than that. Uh, but sometimes people have a theological assumption that if God exists, he should be more seen. He should be more this. This prayer should be answered. Well, that's, that's interesting opinions, okay? But, but what's, your, what's your evidence that those opinions are correct about if, if there's a God, he would do this or that or not do this or that? Um, so I think that could be a starting point, but then you, you guys could discuss some of the things that we've discussed in the class from there. Sherry. Look at a move. <laughs> Thank on, you, Peter. On the Gnostic Gospels, how do we know that they were written late? Um, di different... Um, Dating methods are used when you date uh, documents. I mean, you, you, you can use even th something like carbon dating to date a document, although the, the, the window becomes pretty broad when you do that. Uh, things like the most recent manuscript of that document. So with the Gnostic Gospels, we have manuscripts of them. We don't have the original manuscripts of them, like, you know, which is the, we've said that's the, the case as well with the New Testament. But not only that, but the manuscripts we have of the Gnostic Gospels, there's, there's a much larger period of time between the earliest extant manuscript, and we might only have one or two manuscripts of them, and then the amount of time from which it's believed to have been written. So the, the, the time frame of, of the latest manuscript, that's one way that it, it's dated. Um, things like uh, legendary embellishment, um, indicate the time frame for dating something. Um, so, you know, the Gnostic Gospels tend to be much more embellished than the uh, canonical Gospels. So in, in one of them, like, when Jesus is raised from the dead, a huge cross appears from the sky and it descends. And, you know, just it's just all kinds of imaginative kind of uh, obvious indication that this is, this is legend building up over time. Um, but, the, but the main reason why those Gnostic Gospels tend to be dated is because of Gnosticism. We, we can see in history when, when this movement arose. And so the Gnostic Gospels uh, didn't arise prior to 
or at least not much prior to the movement of Gnosticism, right? And so there's no indication um, from the first century that this particular uh, thing called Valentinian Gnosticism existed then. And so that's, that's one reason why they're dated. Uh, it's sometimes also what their providence, so where they're from, where they were written, that, that's a consideration as well. So uh, it obviously took some time before anything connected to Jesus and Christianity moved to Egypt or this location or that. And so if these, these gospels are coming from these regions and locations, that indicates as well the time frame from which they, they date. That's a good question. Y'all couldn't sit closer together in the room? I mean... scripture one of the biggest questions for me is the whole idea of Balaam because to me he seems like he's not such a bad dude but because he's listening to God and that's where I mean I can see he's being tested and all that but it does say there that he wasn't such a great dude right it says that even in the New Testament so yeah what can you give me your little synopsis and the whole book of Judges we could talk about but we won't um (laughs) Anyway, can you just tell me what you think about Balaam? Yeah. Good dude. <laughs> well, I know I understand uh, your, your kind of mixed feelings about him. I, I, you know, I, I grew up in, in church and children's ministry, and so I watched cartoons with Balaam and the talking donkey, and I thought, you know, that guy's a jerk for beating his donkey, but yeah, he's, you know, I thought, I thought at the end of the day he was supposed to be seen as a positive character, but then you go to the book of Numbers and you read his story, and you got mixed feelings about it, and then as you keep reading the the the, the the opinion of the inspired narrator about Balaam just gets worse and worse, right? Um, I think that's, it's, it's, it illustrates something about how, uh, how the Bible conveys a judgment on somebody. Uh, you know, it's not just, it's not always just their outward actions or statements that uh, are involved, but sometimes the narrative through, through how events turn out, and Balaam, it doesn't turn out pretty for him uh, in the end, um, it's illustrating something about how we should view that person as to the motivations behind their heart. Um, what you see is Balaam seems to be a prophet. Uh, now, the, the, he, he puts the Baal in Balaam, uh, if, you, if you think of it like that. You know, he's so, so he's, he's not a prophet of Yahweh, uh, specifically. He's not, he's not a prophet of the, of the true and living God. But he's a, he's a prophet who is called to cast judgment on Israel, but whom God thwarts his plans so that anytime he opens his mouth, he, he pronounces blessing and ultimately pronounces a beautiful prophetic prediction of the Messiah. Uh, and, and I think, you know, the fact that God was talking, you know, there's a biblical scholar, uh, Dale Ralph Davies, who talks about you know God using an ass to to speak the truth, um, which that happens in the narrative, right? The donkey talks. Well, uh, we were actually supposed to see uh, Balaam's donkey as as a more um, as a character that we should emulate better than than Balaam himself, because the donkey sees the angel and goes around it. Balaam has persisted in his ways. Um, so I think I think Balaam is kind of like a, the, a donkey talking in the in the story. He's somebody who has his own uh, false and mixed uh, motivations and ideas, but through whom God actually speaks the truth. Um, and so the fact that he says things that are true and says things that are right doesn't automatically say that the condition of his heart was good or that his, his aims and motivations in life were, were good. So that would be something to say about that. This will be, be the last one. 
because, unfortunately, because of our time. As concerning the question about if there is a God, uh, I know for myself there is a God. Uh, at my job as a working person, I was a merchant seaman, going to sea, and we have many hours of leisure not to, to do nothing. And so I, I usually read my Bible every night about five or six scriptures before going to sleep. And I was obsessed about the word whether it was a God. And I kept asking myself, is there really a God or we just pretend? And I went to sleep one night and laying on my stomach as I did, there is a hand came over my back and said, this is the hands of God. And I shook so hard and so I woke myself up. I got up shaking. And I said to myself, before I woke up, I said, is this really the hands of God? And it blew itself. You couldn't see it. The, it was the, the, the amount that it came down was almost impossible to see. But I knew somehow in my mind that it came down a little bit. And I shook even more loud. And I said, there is God. And I have no question about it ever again. There is a God. Hmm. Very interesting. Amen. Thank you, Rufus. Uh, I think that's a good that's a good thought to close on because um, you know we may not have these kinds of arguments memorized and and uh, be able to traffic in, in all these ideas. We want to grow in our ability to do that because we think God's called us to engage these issues. Uh, but ultimately, it's it's your encounter with the Lord. It's your personal experience of Him, your pursuit of Him through His Word and prayer. That's what will sustain your faith, right? You can't ignore the evidence. You can't ignore these issues. Um, but if you don't have something in you that says, "I want to, I want to go after God and I want to experience Him. I want to see Him do miracles in my life," uh, th then th that's not going to sustain you in the end. Um, and, you know, the, don't, don't buy into the, the presentation of the new atheist that unless you have some sort of argument and evidence that you can't reasonably believe something. That's not true to our experience, right? There are things that we believe every day that we can't formulate some sort of deductive argument for. We can't make a case necessarily. Or how do you, do you, how do you know that you're in a chair right now sitting listening to me speak? Uh, do you have some sort of argument in your head about that? It, it's the experience itself that uh, makes you reasonable to believe that because you, you've got the immediacy of your experience. Well, there's something of the experience of God through his word, through prayer, through living the Christian life uh, that is more foundational and, and, and more immediate to us and who we are and more necessary to our faith than anything any other argument can do. So, Thanks for being here. And for those of you who have been ministered to by the Holy Spirit through heaven, let's give a clap. Thank you, Thank you guys. Appreciate it.